0: We are going to finish Joshua, and so (laughs) we are just we're we're in essence taking chapters nine through twenty-four and doing it quick. Okay, Um, so take your time and read through. There's so much there. Some that's a little bit easier to pass off. But last week we dealt with getting back on track. Now, what if you failed? You were defeated. And you came to a point of, of repentance. You were broken. And then, and then now what? What is the next step forward? Getting back on track. And I, I mentioned that last week. You get on the interstate and you're going to your destination and you see traffic. And it diverts you off the road. How miserable is it when you get on a back road and you're just going two miles an hour through a mountaintop or whatever. Um, just such a burden. But when you get back on track. There's so much joy moving forward. And so the nation of Israel had been defeated, right? They, they had been defeated at Ai, and then they repented, and they, they dealt with the sin, and now what? It was what we dealt with last week. I, I mentioned this last week. God is ready to lead if you are ready to listen. So, like, what's the next step forward? Um, in in uh, Joshua chapter 8, Uh, we walked through that we saw that there was a renewed confidence there's a renewed confidence take hope in god it says do not fear do not be dismayed take all the fighting men with you rise and go to the same city you just were defeated in see i have given into your hand the king of ai and his people god has provided a victory go in confidence against somebody you were just defeated by and so we, we looked at the next part of the, the chapter. We just said it's, it's the renewed command. It's, it's the, a different city, right? It's a different battle. And there's a different battle plan, but the commander is the same. Joshua listened to God and realigned with what God, and, and let me say this, don't ever get enamored by the man. Don't get enamored by Joshua because Joshua's power, the, the power in his ministry was because he listened to God and followed in the footsteps that God. The battle plan was God's. Joshua just took notes and led that way. And so there was a renewed conviction after they took the victory in Ai and that they, they devoted it to destruction. They took some stuff. Um, they were allowed to take some stuff. Chapter Uh, verse 30 to the end they had this this worship service thanking God they re-centered on the the Word of God and I I wrestled with this last week you know when you experience a taste of victory in the Christian life maybe a, a temptation that that holds you in bondage but you go for a week and man it's it's not so bad like you have victory in a different way you have a response in that moment some people look in the mirror and say, I'm doing pretty good now, and I'm doing all right. And we know from the word of God that your, your fall is coming if you think when you look in the mirror that any victory in the Christian life had to do with how good you're doing. Pride goes before the fall. But, but oh, that's with, sorry, I skipped ahead. The there it goes. Pride goes before the fall. But listen, if you look at your life, and you see victory, and you respond in brokenness and say, thank you, God. Thank you for the victory. It's crazy. It's, it's placing yourself in a place of dependence where God's grace can continue to sustain you and continue to give you, you victory. And so the takeaway last week, um, if you remember, don't dwell in the pain of your defeat in AI. Don't dwell in the pain of where you were defeated. If you've repented of that and you, you have renewed to your following of the Lord, don't, lay, don't think about how you have sinned and you failed and God could never use me. Lay hold of the promises of God and move forward to victory. And so last week, uh, we, we ended that way. And uh, I want to give you just, it'll be a, a couple minutes long, But I want you to see for yourself, this is a tremendous uh, resource. If you have logged on to Right Now Media, you can go on later tonight and watch this again. All of these uh, videos are called The Bible Project, and they give you kind of an outline of the whole book. Okay, so I explained, I was telling a couple guys before the service, instead of me preaching through Joshua chapter 9 to 22, we're going to watch a video. Sound good? This, this is tremendous. My kids love this, by the way. Um, sometimes during bedtime story, I'll pull up one of these videos, and they love these videos. And so uh, watch this, and uh, we'll get back online.
1: The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the Promised Land. And then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites. And so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes. And then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new leader. Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the River Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. Now, in chapter 5, the story transitions. So the people look back to their roots as God's covenant people. And so the new generation is circumcised and they celebrate their first Passover in the land. But then they turn and prepare to go forward. And Joshua has this crazy encounter with a mysterious warrior who, it turns out, is the angelic commander of God's army. And Joshua asks, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the warrior responds, neither which shows that the real question here is whether Joshua is on God's side. It makes clear that this whole story is not about Israel versus the Canaanites. Rather, this is God's battle, and Israel is going to play the role of spectators or sometimes supporters in God's plan which leads to the next section. We find stories about all these conflicts that Israel had with different Canaanite groups and the first part retells the story of two battles in detail and that's followed by a series of short stories that condense years of battles into a few brief summaries. So the first two battles are against Jericho and then Ai and they offer these contrasting portraits of God's faithfulness versus Israel's failure. At Jericho, Israel is to take a completely passive approach. So they let God's presence in the ark lead them around the city to music for six days. And just like Rahab turned to the God of Israel, maybe the people of Jericho would do the same but they don't and so on the seventh day the priests blow the trumpets and the walls come falling down leading Israel to victory. The point of the story is that God is the one who will deliver his people Israel simply needs to trust and wait Now the next story of the battle at Ai makes the opposite point. So there's this Israelite named Achan and he steals from Jericho some of the devoted goods that were to belong to God alone and then he lies about it. It's a pretty lame move after all that God has done for Israel. And so Israel goes into battle with the city of Ai and they're totally defeated. And it's only after humble repentance and severely dealing with Achan's sin that Israel gains victory. And so together, these two stories, they're placed right up front to make an important point. If Israel is going to inherit the land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment. Now, the second part of this section begins with the Gibeonites, a Canaanite people group. And they do just what Rahab did as they turn to follow the God of Israel and they make peace with Israel. This is in contrast to all of these other Canaanite kings who start to form alliances and coalitions and they want to destroy Israel. So Israel engages them in battle and they win by a landslide. And so this whole section concludes with this summary list of all of these victories won by Moses and then by Joshua. Now, let's stop for a second because odds are that these stories and the violence in them, they're going to bother you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're bound to wonder like, Didn't Jesus say to love your enemies? Why is God declaring war here? So first, why the Canaanites? The main reasons are actually given earlier in the biblical story. It's that the culture of the Canaanites had become extremely morally corrupt, especially when it comes to sex. Go check out Leviticus chapter 18. And they also widely practiced child sacrifice. Go see Deuteronomy chapter 12. And so God didn't want these practices to influence Israel. The Canaanites had to go. Which raises the second question. Did God actually command the destruction of all the Canaanites like a genocide? So at first glance, you know, you look at the phrases used in these stories. They totally destroyed them. They left no survivor or anything that breathed. But when you look a second time more closely, you'll see that these phrases are clearly hyperbole and not literal. So go back to the original command about the Canaanites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Israel is first told to drive out the Canaanites, but then to totally destroy them. And then that's followed by commands to not intermarry with them or enter into business deals with them. So You can't marry someone that you've destroyed. I think you get the point. The same idea applies to the stories in Joshua. Look closely. So, for example, we're told in Joshua chapter 10 that Israel left no survivors in the cities of Hebron or Debir. But then later in chapter 15, we see these towns and they're still populated by Canaanites. And so what we're seeing is that Joshua fits in with other ancient battle accounts by using non-literal hyperbolic language as part of the narrative style. And so the word genocide doesn't actually fit what we see here, especially in light of the stories about the Canaanites who did turn to the God of Israel, like Rahab or the Gibeonites. God was open to those who would turn to him. The last thing to think about is that these stories mark a unique moment in Israel's history. These battles were limited to the handful of people groups living in the land of Canaan. With all other nations, Israel was commanded by God to pursue peace. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 20. So the purpose of these battle stories was never to tell you, the reader, to go commit violence in God's name. Rather, they show God bringing his justice on human evil at a unique moment in history and how he delivered Israel from being annihilated by the Canaanites. Now, let's go back to the book's design. After years of battles, we see an aging Joshua, and he starts dividing up the land for the 12 tribes of Israel. And most of this section is like lists of boundary lines. And let's be honest, it's kind of boring. It's like reading a map that has no pictures. But for the Israelites, these lists were super important. This was the fulfillment of God's ancient promises to Abraham, that his descendants would inherit the promised land. And so now it was all coming to pass right down to the detail, which leads to the final section. Joshua gives two speeches to the people that are very similar to the final speeches of Moses in Deuteronomy.
0: Aren't those pretty neat, though? They just... Some of you guys just don't think other than just give me a picture and explain it to me. Well, that's what this is. This is like directions. And so here we are, chapter 23 and 24. Uh, we've, we've just journeyed through, and you divided out the land, and we come to the end. And today, we are going to talk about you choose. You choose. Now, I'm going to just kind of introduce this idea uh, I don't know if it's the same for your family, but it is for mine. Uh, When I say, where do you want to eat? What's the response? No, the response is not Wendy's. The response is, you choose. Well, no, you choose. Why do I have to choose, right? Is this pretty common everywhere in the room? It is, right? And so there's this idea that I gotta choose. It's on me to choose. And, and you kick it off. No, you choose. Well, this idea, by the way, this has helped my wife and I have learned how to do this well. And you take notes, especially young married couples. If you cannot decide where to eat, put five restaurants in a hat and each person take, a, take one try to remove one of them. Right? You each take a turn. And at the end, there's the one restaurant that, yeah, we'll all eat at. All right? So that was, uh, that was helpful to me. But think about Joshua. Joshua was born in Egypt. He was born into bondage. Joshua saw. He was in the tribe. He was with Moses as he led across the Red Sea. And for 40 years in the wilderness, do you remember, they wandered. He was one of two people that believed God. He was one of the two spies that went in and brought a good report that said, we can take it. God has given it to us. And they didn't believe it. And so Joshua, his storyline, he comes back, and he's wandering the wilderness, and then right before they enter in, Moses had to die. And Joshua, God placed in command, led him across the Red Sea, and now he spent the, the major part of his older years going from kingdom to kingdom gaining victory after victory and gaining soil and towns. And he comes to the very end of his life and these are his last days. These are his last words. And so all the people are leaning in. I want to know what Joshua would have to say. And so we pick up Joshua chapter 23. Joshua was challenging the leaders. He challenged the leaders. Joshua chapter 23 verse 1. As long time after, a long time afterwards, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. At this point, he was about 110 years old. All right, do you think you could get out of bed at 110 years old and continue to lead an entire nation? Uh, He was 110 years old. And Joshua summoned all of Israel or all Israel, its elders, its heads, its judges, its officers, and said to them, I am now old and advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done, all these nations, for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted. You feel the weight. You feel the weight of the words. He's seen God win victory after victory. says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off, from Jordan, which is east, to the river, or to the, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, to the west. And he promised victory Uh, At this point, he's recounting how God's promise of victory, that they could lay hold of this promise of victory as they move forward. It says, the Lord your God will push them back from before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land as the Lord your God promised you. God has always been faithful, and he will continue to be faithful is what he's saying. He will continue to to fulfill his promises. Therefore, be very strong. Be very strong. When we hear be very strong, so many times we think, man, i got to strengthen myself to fight for God. This is is about strengthening yourself in steadfastness, being faithful and walking by faith. When he's saying be very strong, he's not saying to man up and take the win. He's saying trust God. Be steadfast. Be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the law of, of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them to serve them or bow down to them. Now this is a, this is a context or, or a concept that has so many times in, in human history, especially among white evangelicals, has been taken straight out of context. This idea, the promises and the challenges to the nation of Israel, white evangelicals throughout history have taken as if it's their, their job that we cannot intermingle with other nationalities. Hey, we are the people of God. They are not. And they take it completely out. This is a context that has nothing to do with white America. Has nothing to do with white European. I have books in my office that, that state why we should not marry African American people. From back in 1960s, not that long ago. And the premise for which they, they set this this point was this idea that the nation of Israel shouldn't intermarry with the Canaanites. The reality is we're all the heathen Gentiles. You we all agree? You have Jews and then you have Gentiles. And so there's not a pure like this idea of a pure race that we have to this has nothing to do with you that has nothing to do with the color of your skin or the nationality this promise is for Israel alone if you want to take it for yourself second corinthians paul is talking about a spiritual israel that's us be not unequally yoked with unbelievers because you have no fellowship with darkness you have no fellowship with unbelievers is speaking of any union that you make with an unbeliever like i have no ability to relate to an unbeliever in union we think differently we reason differently and so that challenge if you want to take it for yourself is a spiritual concept don't take it as a physical concept uh, i've been a part of circles that have taken it as a physical concept So that, that was for Israel. He continues to say, "But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven, listen to what God has done on their behalf. He's driven out before you great and strong nations. And as you, as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. A thousand to one. One man standing up puts to flight a thousand. Why? Because the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. It's not about how, how big you are in numbers or how great a warrior you are. It's all about how God is fighting for you. And the enemy has no chance against you, nation of Israel. So be very careful, therefore, to love your God, Lord your God. He promised victory, right? But verse 12, he turns to this page, and he guarantees defeat. He guarantees defeat. What are you talking about? How can you promise victory and guarantee defeat? Listen to what it says. I've got a couple verses to then. It says, "For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations, remaining among you and make marriages intermarrying, Jews with the Gentile nations." So that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain, This is a guarantee, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides, a thorn in your eyes until you perish from off the good ground that the Lord your God has given you. He's promising you will be whipped. If you ignore these commands, you ignore these promises, ignore this covenant. So if you can transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go serve other gods, bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that the Lord has given you. You will be defeated. How? How? Some of the things we just read, by ignoring the Word of God. I'm speaking to spiritual Israel. You will be defeated in your Christian walk when you ignore the truth of the Word of God. It's a promise. It's going to happen. You will walk in defeat. What's another thing? By linking up with unbelievers... Listen, I am not strong enough. I, I, need, I need believers who will spur me on to walk in a right way, that hold me accountable. That, just the opposite. And I'm not saying don't have friends who are unbelievers. I'm saying don't link up. I've, I've shared with so many students through the years, and that's what the gray hair, and you think it's because of my kids, it's because of student ministry through the years. I have gray in my beard. Same with Tony, by the way. But listen, how many students, uh, you come to him and you say, man, I know he's gorgeous. I know he t- talks to you so sweet and he loves you, but he doesn't know the Lord. Yeah, but I'm going to, I'm an evangelist. I'm going to share the gospel with him and maybe he'll get saved. Then we can get married. It'll be perfect. Or they'll say, no, we'll get married and I'll just make sure he goes to church. And hopefully he'll get saved." say, listen. I look at student after student and say, that's not the way it works. So many marriages have spent years and years like this because they ignored what the Word is saying. That's another thing. They, they worship idols. They turned from worshiping the true God. And so when you look at your life, the things that's guaranteed defeat when you ignore the commandment, like ignore the Word of God, I put this as a just kind of a, a summary of that idea, that our victories in life are a direct reflection of my faith. The reason I have a heart to believe or to obey is because I heart, have a heart to believe that idea, the victories in life, and the way that that I play it in my mind. We shared a couple weeks ago. The Word of God says, "Walk by the Spirit." And what happens? You won't fulfill the lusts of your flesh, the desires of your flesh. I I took the liberty, maybe out of out of turn, but I took the liberty to add an adjustment to it too. Don't don't say I'm changing scripture because I'm not. But look at it this way: on the flip side. You don't walk in the spirit, and you will gratify the desires of your flesh. Right? Walk in the spirit. And you won't, you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So don't walk in the spirit and you will fail. Right? So our defeats in life are a direct reflection of faithlessness. The call is not to work harder to get victory. The call is to walk by faith. The call is to trust him. The call is to lay hold of the victory that he's promised you. And the way, the way Galatians says it, and this is, let me say, the scenario in the American church, when somebody gets saved, what do we tell them? Right? here's what we tell them. I put it on a couple slides past. All right. We say, here's what you don't do. And here's all the things that you do. Now that you're a Christian, don't do this and do this. We spend so much time on don't do bad things and do good things. You need to come to church, you know? You got to do this, this, and this. And we focus on just the things that you have to do and the things that you don't have to do. But we fail to emphasize the idea of dependence. The Christian life is not about do's and don'ts. That's a system. That's not a person. The Christian life is Jesus. And so that's what Paul was even challenging. He's challenging believers in Galatia. He's challenging them and said, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Let me translate. Let me ask you this. Are you saved by doing works or by believing? What are you? We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith, right? Amen, that should be our battle flag right there. That's a hill worth dying on, right? You didn't receive the Spirit because you were a good person that did the law. You received the Spirit because you believed. You trusted. Now look at the next verse, though. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit... You started off not based on what you can do, but based on what he has done, and you believed it. It says, Have you begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the, the flesh? The comparison, what it's saying is, You are not made holy. You are not sanctified. You are not perfected by the law. Of do's and don'ts. That is not how it works. The idea is God Himself is perfecting us. We are trusting in Him. It's His working in us. That's what Paul said to the Ephesians, chapter two, verse ten and two says, "We are His workmanship." I think that's King James version. We're His workmanship. We're his work project. He is creating in us somebody that walks in good works, walks in obedience to Christ. And so the challenge is, it's not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. Don't do this, do this. But it is Jesus. One of my favorite uh, authors, um, he said it this way. The one who calls you to a life of righteousness is the one who by our consent lives that righteousness through you. We are vessels of his glory. It's not about us. That, that's a hard thing to understand. And so we're, we're, really what I'm emphasizing is the goal is not to try to get the victory. The goal is to try to walk in the spirit. Seek to align yourself with Christ, and you will walk in victory. We spend so much of our life trying to put up guardrails in our life. To, that's what we focus on, because I don't want to go out of bounds in the Christian life. And we forget there's a whole road in front of us. Lay hold of Jesus. As a Christian, lay hold of Jesus by faith. And so chapter 24, we'll fly through this. I want to get to a, a core of the heart of this passage. Chapter 24, Joshua then charged the entire nation... And this is his farewell speech, if you want to call it He carries this fatherly burden. that we've gotten all this territory at this point. I don't want you to lose it. I don't want you to be defeated in the land. And so he reminded them of a number of things. Uh, verse 1, it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders and heads and judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And here, this is one of the most uh, just abbreviated summaries of Genesis through Joshua. All right, this is a very wonderful thing. If you are somebody that likes, just give me the main synopsis of this story. Here you go. Joshua is going to retell to the people, and he's wanting to remind them of God's faithfulness. Throughout his entire life, he saw God's faithfulness. He's reminding them. He's reminding them that God chose us. God chose us. And Joshua said to all the people. Or wait, whoa, it skipped over again. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived before beyond the Euphrates. It's a river. <laughs> and, uh, and Terah, the, the father of Abraham and Nahor, the... And they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Cana and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country. Uh, near Mount Seir, that area, to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. You remember how that story went? How Jacob ended up in Egypt? His son Joshua, you remember? There was famine in the land. God had raised up his son. What, God, uh, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. God was preserving his people through that terrible story so he's reminded him that God chose us. He reminded him that God saved us. God saved us. I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards, I brought you out. Remember that just that whole story in Exodus, that God is working this salvation for Israel. And then I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. We're looking at this big sea and we have no hope. We're going to be killed here at the edge of the water. The Egyptians pursued your fathers and chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea and were cornered. There's nowhere to go. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time, 40 years. Because of what? Because of unbelief. Hebrews 3 and 4 spends a lot of time talking about what that, the the reason they wandered in the wilderness. But you see that. It's a picture of salvation, by the way. I mentioned it five weeks ago, that, that they're hopeless. They got nowhere to turn, and the very water that they were spared from And they walked through, it's a picture of the wrath of God that they walked through and not even a drop of wrath was on their feet. They get to the other side and they turn around and the very wrath that they were saved from came down on their enemies. It's just a powerful picture of the salvation of his people. Us. And so then God, he reminded them that God fought for us. God fought for us. Verse eight. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan and they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land and destroyed before them and skipped down to 11. And you went over the Jordan, came to Jericho and the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergazites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, Could you do that? I dare you this afternoon to try to do that. It all came out. All right. And I gave them into your hand. God gave them the victory. God fought for them. God provided for them. He's reminding them, not only the manna in the wilderness, you remember, and the water from the rock, right, the quail. Verse 13 said, I gave you a land on which you had not labored. You didn't do anything to get the fruit in that land. And cities that you had not built, you didn't build that city. Somebody else did, and God dispossessed it, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God provided that. So verse fourteen he turns this he turns to the people and says, "You choose and this is uh this is a passage I think we all know this verse because it's on the wall like you see plaques at uh, uh, hobby lobby that have this verse and some of you have it in your house, on the wall of your house. It'd be a good verse to put on your. But when you understand now in the context of Joshua, he comes to the end and he is, he is challenging, he's charging the people. He's about to say it this way. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in ser- sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord There's no question. This is, I'm calling you to serve the Lord. Don't turn to other gods. And if it is evil in your eyes, or if it's unacceptable to serve the Lord, then choose this day who you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in in the region beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You don't want to serve God? And here's a, I'm, I'm going to tread carefully on this. A lot of times we think that God, the God we worship is the God for us and not the world. We're careful to really boast about the Lord outside the walls of a church. And honestly, because we feel like, man, who am I to tell them to be accountable to that God? I know I'm accountable, but they're, I mean, that's not their God. Listen, every knee will Bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Right, this is a God that is, we are all accountable. Every human being that walks this earth will stand before God. Amen. And you might not think it's acceptable to follow him. You might have a holdup, you might have, but listen, you will be standing before him one day. Amen. And Joshua turns to the people and says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm a, I want to speak to the American Christian family today, because I think sometimes we get this idea of serving the Lord, especially men that sits home right now during COVID-19. Sometimes we get this idea, and we translate the verse to say something like this: "As for me and my house, we will go to church." My family, we're going to be in a church house. From Monday morning to Saturday night, there may be no evidence that your home is a Christian home, but by golly, we're going to serve the Lord by going to church. You come to this season right now, and churches, should we go to church? Should we not? There may be homes for the last four months that have had no evidence that there's a follower of Jesus in it. Nothing different, because we signed up not necessarily to serve the Lord. We've signed up. I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to take my family to church. Fathers, if the only spiritual investment That you have in your home is to just make sure your family gets to church. You're not doing your job. I'm not doing my job. If that's what my target is, I'm missing. Book of Judges, by the way, I don't know if you turned the page. We won't go over it today. Book of Judges, it gets kind of ugly. You know why? I believe with all my heart because the fathers didn't deal with their children. The fathers didn't step up. The fathers didn't tell their children. Somebody else will tell them. I'll make sure they're at church so somebody else tell them. Listen, you're there to tell them. God has set you up to lead your family. In the nation of Israel, they intermarried. Why did they intermarry? Because the father said, go ahead. And again, this is not about race. This is about uh, being united with an unbeliever. It's okay. It'll work out in the end. That's your job, fathers. Step up. Your family might worship idols, and I'm I'm constantly acknowledging these subtle things in my own home that scare me. Is this an idol that's that's cropping up in my home that's going to affect the trajectory of my home? I want to stand vigilant there as a man of my house. I want to lead my family to follow after the Lord. There's an urgency. I need to pray with my kids, not just pray for them, but pray with them. I need to open the Bible and read, not just so they see me reading, but I need to read with them. I need to be willing to answer questions and ask questions. Man, that's us. That's us. But I'm not really I just don't know a lot about the Bible. This is a good chance for you to get started, right? There's an urgency here. But mothers, I, I put this down. my heart was wrenching about this, just thinking too of mothers. the most important legacy that you can leave for your kids is not being a great cook, a great homemaker or making sure your kids are well-dressed and taken care of. The greatest legacy that you can leave for your kids is to show them Jesus. So many times it's like all this stuff that you think is your job, this is the core. Show them Jesus. That's more important than anything. So uh, I'm reminded of this. I'm pulling it to an end. We go to church We don't go to church. We are the church, right? The church is not four walls and a steeple on the building. That is not the church. We are the church. And when church closes, the church leaves, right? The church is out there. If the government says you can no longer meet, the church is going to go on. The church isn't this building. So there's this powerful thought i i i remembered this years ago and i have shared it with every guy that i've ever discipled over the last 15 years uh i've shared this idea i want you to think about this how how does god demonstrate his power and glory in the gospels four different guys told the story how did god show his glory and power in the gospels in the body of Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah. The miracles he did, the incredible. God was demonstrating his power and glory in Jesus. So you turn the page from, from the Gospels and you turn to Acts, right? How did God demonstrate His power in Acts? How did He demonstrate His glory in Acts? Through Jesus' earthly body. The Gospels is Jesus' physical earthly body that had skin and hands, and and then you turn the page, Jesus died and he rose and he gave himself. When he ascended, it said he gave himself to the church. And then it started this this new period where we are the body of Christ, we are Jesus' earthly body. And so, when we talk about serving God, right Acts is all about not about what the apostles did for God. It's about what the indwelling Jesus did through the apostles, right? This is not wow. Look at what the apostles did. That's pretty incredible. It's what God did to show His glory and power to the world. So look at us. We're called to serve God. That does not mean that I need to do my best to try to be a servant of God or work hard for Jesus. I, it's not about doing something for him. The greatest thing that you can do as a follower of Jesus, if you say, I want to serve the Lord with my life, it's give yourself to him. Lay your life at the altar. Lay yourself down before God and say, God, will you do something through me? Will you use me to demonstrate your glory and power to a world around me? Do you want to serve the Lord? That is how it happens. My job is to be available as a vessel of God. And I, I, I challenge this idea of volunteers in the church. A lot of people volunteer for jobs in the church. What we need is a servant who's available to God. A servant is willing to do whatever, whenever, I'm available, I'm not my own, I've been bought with a price. A volunteer thinks, I wonder if I, I can do that, I wonder if I like the people in that job, I wonder if I like the job, kids smell, you know, volunteering to change diaper, man, I don't know if I can do that, it's not my cup of tea, a servant of God, you know what a servant of God will say, whatever, whenever. I'm available because I'm a vessel of your glory. God, I'm available to you. If you'd have me to do whatever, I'm available. And so, as a takeaway, just a challenge to you, uh, serving God, you you say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the God, it doesn't mean going to church. It doesn't mean trying to do something for God. Since He did so much for me, I'm going to try to return the favor. That's not what it's about. He didn't save you so that you can do something for him. He saved you so he can indwell you and to demonstrate his power through you. So serving God isn't about doing something for God. It's about being available for God to do something through little old me. That's why he picked us, by the way, the base things of this world to confound the wise. Like, how's God using that guy? There's no glory in this for us. If we think that I'm doing something for him, then at the end of the day, maybe I served in the church for 40 years, I stand up here and get my medal, and I feel like I did something. But listen, if I recognize that I'm available to God to demonstrate his glory and power, it's all about him, his mission, I'm available, I want to be that guy.